Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. Happy, as always, to be with my partner in crime, Mr. Tom Joke. Tom? Christopher, again, a thrill. And this was a really nice discovery. I had no idea this existed. And, you know, as I've said countless times, some of these interviews are on CD. Some of them are on reel-to-reel tape. Some are on DAT. Some are on mini-disc. Um... But thankfully, (laughs) some are also on hard drive. And that's where I found this 1991 epic interview with R.E.M. Just as they're about to explode with the song Losing My Religion. We're even going to play a very short clip of Michael Stipe and R.E.M. performing Losing My Religion at the very end. Just to show you kind of the subtlety and the nuance of a great singer interpreting his own work in a slightly different way. It's just great. Tom, this interview is with my old colleague, Denise Donlan, who has had a remarkable career in music and television and who always did some of the most thoughtful interviews on Much Music. You know, Christopher, I know Denise's work very well, but listening to this interview from 91 just reminded me of how good she is in it. Can't wait to hear it. What else have we got this week, Tom? Well, Christopher, just a few days ago, I got to chat with a guy that you know well, but one that I was meeting only for the first time, and that is Kim Mitchell. Of course, Kim's history dates back to the mid-70s with Max Webster, and you'll hear me geeking out to Kim about those early days, as well as his time as a solo artist, including the peak of his career in the late 80s when he was selling out big stadiums big time. Plus... We talk about his time as a radio DJ. And we'll also hear Kim's latest project, which is a collaboration with the Bare Naked Ladies, and it is exceptional. Also, to shake things up a little bit, a bit of a palate cleanser, we have a very brief two-minute interview with Barry Manilow, which, quite frankly, is just enough. And this was sent to us from our friends at CJAD in Montreal. Hello, Montreal. It's short and sweet, but it's very interesting, and uh, can't wait to play that for you. And we close things off with some news about Peter Frampton. And it's not good news, but Peter is not going down without a fight. And I have a really interesting early career interview with Peter talking about the moments that got him into music in the first place. It's really interesting. The story is fascinating. Stick around for that. That's near the end of the show. Let's get started. That's me in the corner. That's Losing My Religion from 1991, the studio version. We're going to hear a different version in a few minutes as we talk about R.E.M. Tom, guitarist Peter Buck described R.E.M.'s sound. He called it minor key, mid-tempo, enigmatic, semi-folk rock balladish things. <laughs> well, they had a sound, for sure, and one that resonated with audiences in a unique way. Arguably, R.E.M. was the first indie band to move to the mainstream. And they built their success the old way, slowly, one consistent quality album at a time. Yeah. Blend in touring and cool videos. They released five albums with IRS records and switched to Warner for the 1988 album Green, which was, at the time, their biggest success to date. They also signed the biggest record deal ever at the time, receiving $80 million for five LPs in a deal that still gets referenced as more of a cautionary tale than anything else. 
It was also before the 360 deal era began with Robbie Williams, Madonna, and Jay-Z. Whoa, boy, they missed out with Robbie Williams, didn't they? <laughs> they thought oh, he yeah, was going to be an ouch. a much bigger star than he turned out to be. And I really liked him, and I liked some of his songs, but man, that was a big miss from an artist who was absolutely huge in the UK, but never really managed to make anything of himself here on this side of the Atlantic. So true. So this interview with Denise Donlan from 1991 is timed to the release of Out of Time, the album that put them over the top, making Warner look, by the way, like geniuses at the time when the record went four times platinum. Mm. Denise asked Michael Stipe about the song World Leader Pretend and putting lyrics on the album cover. Now that song um, from Green, that was, that was a very pivotal song for you, I understand, in a lot of ways. It kind of was. I mean, in a way, it was the first song that we ever put the lyrics to uh, on, a, on a packaging, and a lot of people, I guess, put a lot of credence in that. I just happen to think that it read well, uh-huh. which uh, which a lot of lyrics don't. Really? You don't think that if people had their, your lyrics in their hand that they would actually read, like, poetry? I think they would hurl them out the window as no. soon as they could. <laughs> uh, no, you know, they're, intend- they're written, they're written as, as lyrics to go with music, and they really don't read that well. If I wanted to be a poet or a writer, that's what I would do. Ah, uh, but you are a poet and a writer. Well... <laughs> it's interesting, because that, that lyric in there that says, this is my life, this is my time, to me reads as fresh for that song as it does for the new album, because in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know, you had financial security at the time to do it. It seemed like everything was in place for you to push whatever creative borders you wanted. It seems like that might have been, might have been what we did, actually, without of time. I mean, I feel that way. I think it's probably the best record that we've made, mm-hmm. so I'm really proud of it. That's a good thing. It would be, it would be awful to have it, it out would, there and be it doubt, doubtful. It would bite if it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's go back historically just a little bit, because this is very close to the exact time, what, 10, 11 years later, your first live performance? Exactly. The first 11 years, April 5th, 1980, was our first live performance in front of real people, as opposed to, you know, four <laughs> walls and rats and stuff. But in, in you, you managed to maintain a lot of the same attitudes that you started out with then. We've maintained the same wardrobe and nothing else. You have? Yes, okay. <laughs> well, washed you know. a few times. <laughs> Maybe not that jacket Michael's wearing. It's the wonders of radio. You can't really enjoy that jacket in the way it's being enjoyed this by those of us This is a beautiful jacket. I have dogs, and, <clears throat> and my dogs never go for the clothes that I get at the Salvation Army or the, the tennis shoes that I bought at the store for $20. They go for the stuff that I picked up in London or Paris or what have you for, <laughs> for substantially more money. Maybe but they're just trying to keep you honest, ultimately. At least they have good taste, yeah. <laughs> Man, there's so much in that clip, from Michael's disdain for his work (laughs) being described as poetry, to a brief history of the band, to the clothes that Michael wears, and the clothes that his pets inevitably decide to chew up. (laughs) It was was a power-packed clip, I gotta say. It was. That that could be one inter- whole interview just in and of itself. Absolutely. And then there's Bill Barry. Ever the thoughtful drummer, Tom. This is offset about you that you blow people's mind. I mean, I don't know where drummers get this rap, but they constantly remark on Bill, the thoughtful drummer. Yeah. Well, as drummers go, I'm probably a little more intelligent than most people. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't say a lot for me, but um, it doesn't say a whole lot for other drummers. <laughs> oh, no, and now everybody pulls out their best drummer joke. Okay. Now, that was a song that actually made the <laughs> record, but what I heard was that you went in with so many songs and then trying to decide which songs would actually end up on the record that... Mike, you had a list of 10 songs, and Peter, you had a list, and they weren't even close. Is that true? Yeah, there was a point when we had, I think, 20 that we knew were going to be in contention, and I wrote mine, and Mike wrote his, and they weren't very close at all. But then it, it turned out that some of them didn't get finished, and sometimes songs just don't last. You like them for a week and not six months, and you know the record you've got to live with, as long as you live, at least. So, yeah. you know, there, there were a couple things that I really liked that just after... I don't know, a week, I just realized we're not very good songs at all. And then when you have to live on, with them on the road forever, like you did with the Green Tour, that was a, a long time out there. 
That would be, yeah, that, you've got to be very careful because you don't have to play things you don't like night after night. <laughs> that, that was, what was it like? I mean, that was really the record that, that put you uh, in stadiums, wasn't it? Was that a big leap for you? I mean, physically, huh? musically, even, even sort of in a headspace sort of way? Well, it was something that we kind of figured we'd have to do sooner or later was to play arenas. And we just wanted to see if we could do it and do it well without resorting to the same old, you know, gestures and and. You know, pyro explosions that everybody else uses. Uh, we we figured there had to be a way to get through to that many people that far away without doing that. So we used um, the big screen behind us, and we used our own inimitable brand of light lighting. And uh, and by by putting the words on the screen that people usually say, you know, hello, we're really glad to be here. Well, in where are we? Cleveland. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> so we just put them on the screen just to let the audience know that that they were in on the joke. As well. I think some people didn't really get the joke, but I think most of them probably did. Yeah. Uh, it was all there right in front of them. At one point, maybe in the in the mid '80s or the early mid '80s, I I had this idea that a stadium gesture was raising your arms above your head or or putting your feet apart. So it was a rule of mine that I couldn't do those things, but I wound up kind of like waddling around the stage, flapping my arms. And so <laughs> at some point I had to, I had to go like this and I did, and it worked. And there was a dance craze all over the country the That's next right. day, right? Instead of dancing, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> oh, here we come back to the timeless topic of the press and in their case, the integrity label. I think that a lot of journalists come down with, with an idea of what we are or, or what we are as people. Uh, and, and, they just pick clues that fit into their idea, uh, and they don't really come at us with, with open arms. Mm. I mean, I could say that they probably don't do the same thing with, with George Michael or Michael Jackson, yeah. uh, if you want to take it that far, but, but I think that George Michael and Michael Jackson can probably get away with a lot more than we can because we have the integrity tag, and that's for a good reason. You yeah. know, I, don't, I don't mind being a band that's thought of as having integrity. Well, that, that's sort of a, a hard a route to live up to, live up to the, the model of musical integrity. I mean, do you have to think about that? Uh, well, it comes, know, it comes naturally. It's held together with airplane glue. <laughs> it's funny because some of your fans are, are very um, critical. They're watching every move. They're trying to decipher the lyrics, and they're fanatic in a sense. I mean, aren't the people called disciples out That's there? That's another kind of crude thing that was put forth by the English press. And, uh, mm. you know, it's been reported that I'm seen in, in Athens clubs with my disciples hanging around me, and, and those are my friends, and that's really incredibly insulting to me and to them. Yeah. I mean, those are the people that I hang out with and, and because they're not famous or well-known and not recognizable to the journalist who happens to be there that day doesn't make them little followers of mine or, or sycophants. Right. You know, I, I really, I don't, I don't really go for kibbles and bits journalism and that's really where I put that kind of yeah. thing. Well, th this is unfortunate because it ends up appearing like you have to walk around with your shields up in a way, don't you? I mean, because in a sense, everybody becomes public property once you've achieved some degree of notoriety. Well, <laughs> you know, you don't, you have to maintain some kind of separation between between what you, you know when, what you do when you're off the road and you're not on. But you know we're we're all fairly genuine people, so I mean what you see is what you get, mm -hmm. kind of unfortunately. I, on the other hand, am totally shallow and, and <laughs> self-serving. So <laughs> that was Peter Buck speaking. <laughs> Peter Buck, yes. Well, somehow I don't know. You've you've avoided the rock star trappings. I mean, a lot of other people that would have had come face to face with the type of success you've had. You know, it, I mean, you, you continually go back to home to Athens like it's like it's a sleeping bag almost for you, like it grounds you somewhere. I think what it boils down to might be our haircuts. You know, <laughs> a lot of people who, who are a lot of people who are famous probably walk around you know 18 hours a day thinking I'm famous. What's going to happen next? Yeah. And they put themselves in places where people who want to see famous people are going to go looking. And and we're not like that. You know, I don't walk around thinking I'm famous. I walk around thinking 
I'm walking to the drugstore now to pick up some more Q-tips. And, and <laughs> you know, if someone happens to come up to me, uh, you know, I, I might figure out, whoops, oh, I don't know them. They know me from the band. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm certainly not griping. I mean, I love my job. I could, yeah. I, you know, I can't think of anybody who I'd rather work with for this amount of time. And on our 11th anniversary, I must say, congratulations. Yes, Happy anniversary. Yes, uh, congratulations. I can't, I, can't, I can't think of another job where I get to mix, you know, where I would be able to mix the one thing that I'm incredibly passionate about in my life, which is music and my job. That is interesting. What does integrity mean? It's like a changing notion. I love how fiercely loyal Michael is to his friends. When Denise talks about the disciples, how he immediately dismisses that whole concept and how mean the press is to people who are seen hanging around Michael Stipe as though they're hangers-on. And they're not, he says. They're friends, and they don't need to be relegated to some kind of, like, uh, groupie status. He was fiercely defensive and protective about his friends. The integrity tag is a strange one. You know, does it mean that you were able to find a rhyme for rainforest? Or, (laughs) you know, does it mean that you have committed yourself to, to very specific causes like human rights now or, you know, something like like the Live Aid cause? Or is it something that's inherent in the music itself? Where where does this supposedly stem from? I, I have to, I've ruminated on this and I know. have no definitive answer. I agree with you. It is interesting because Michael Stipe is talking about how, you know, they're held up as a paragon of a band with integrity, and he both kind of doesn't like it, but he also embraces it because he's proud of the fact that R.E.M. is, you know, is seen as a band with integrity at the time. But man, that is a that is a heavy cross to bear. And I think you can get painted into a corner of being a little bit full of yourself and a little bit pompous if you see yourself in that way. Well, does that mean if you're a guitar band that you never put a synthesizer in your music and that if you do, you've somehow lost your integrity? Right. Or is that just part of growth and experimentation, something that you know every artist is bound to go through? Sure. Or is it a matter of falling you know, prey to pressure from a record label to make changes in the way you approach things? I mean, Sting, who I would think most people would think of as an artist with a ton of integrity, I mean, even he went back to the drawing board to create a single when the label said, you don't have one for this record. Right. That's very interesting stuff about the idea of integrity. Along a similar theme, they talk about democracy in a band. We have a great democracy between the four of us. When, when there's something that could turn into an argument, we fight about it, which, which doesn't happen <laughs> Throw some often. chairs. <laughs> Get it out of the way, clear the air, and, and keep going. And, and that's, that's a great thing that... that you know, it's a great thing that we sh- that we share. Yeah, well, I imagine it must be difficult on some occasions. I mean, often your lyrics have tended to be fairly pointed and political, and I don't necessarily think that maybe they're views that's shared by everybody. Do you get into that argument lyrically? And in- God, um, almost never, actually. Um, I think Michael's pretty careful about writing things that we agree with, but, you know, we've been together 11 years, and, you know, it's like those horrible old married couples who look exactly alike. We're starting to kind of <laughs> believe some of the same things. Um <laughs> But, you know, I think we're not that different anyway. So yeah. if, if Michael has, for instance, he did something for PETA, who I kind of support, but I don't wholeheartedly support, and I would have felt a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. doing something for the soundtrack. I would have felt hypocritical. You know, I wear leather. And, yeah. um, Michael was good enough to work that outside the band, even though it's something that I do kind of agree with. Hmm. Well, it's an unusual situation for a band. I mean, I remember having this conversation with Midnight Oil at one point, and they were trying to remember another band that works as a, as a social democracy, and the best they could come up with was you too, but only if you do what Bono says. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So they had to make sure 
that the band believed in Michael's lyrics if they were going to be political, because some of them, you know, sometimes they didn't always feel exactly on the same page, but they had respect enough for Michael's feelings and, you know, his choices to, for the most part, go along with them. But there were times when they differed a little bit. Tom, when they were recording the album Fables of the Reconstruction, they almost broke up. Well, that's, that's not the album's fault. Um, that was more the state we were in at the time. We were, we were at kind of a crossroads as far as being a band. We weren't sure whether we wanted to continue with what we were doing. We weren't sure how much we were enjoying it. it was, uh, we were at that point where it was as hard a work as it ever was, and there was no money, so we weren't sure whether we wanted to keep doing it. And we made it in London, which was maybe a mistake in retrospect. Uh, we might should have stayed home. But I think... Uh, I think the songs on that record are some of the best we've ever done, uh, some of the best we've ever written. And Joe Boyd is a, is a great producer. Uh, it was just kind of a bad timing, I think, for all of us. We were a little testy. I think that I mean, it, sh- it should be no reflection on Joe. Um, I, I think that Fables of the Reconstruction might be um, one of my favorite two top two REM albums. And I, I, I just think that it was kind of a rough period for us, and, and it was really rainy outside, and it was a long, a long trip from where we were staying to the studio, and it took a long time. Uh, by tube, we had to go by the, by the underground, underground to get there, and that was kind of rough. The studio itself wasn't very comfortable either. It was, no. Uh, but the great thing is, the most amazing thing is, uh, a lot of people that we know and respect tremendously as, as just friends and intelligent people, a lot of people we know think it's their favorite record. So, it, you know, it may be a bit of a, a glum record in some respects, but I think it's a good one. Sometimes you have to take a new direction lyrically, as they did with Out of Time. Love is, is really the theme in a lot of ways for this, this record right now, which is sort of funny because I know when a lot of people uh, start writing their first lyrics, you know, they're about love. It's, you know, love of girl, love of dog, love of car, love of self. Love of country. Love of country, yeah. But it took you, what, seven albums to come around to this theme? Well, I never liked love songs. I think that they're really common. Obviously, mm-hmm. 95% of songs on pop, pop radio are, are about love. They're largely ineffective and um, poorly written. I never wanted to contribute to that, that waste stream of, yeah. of bad pop music, so we kind of avoided the subject um, a lot. What we wound up with, you know, was, was um, a lot of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so what brought you around to this, do you think? Well, pr- pretty mostly, I think, um, uh, I've said this so many times, I could say it without my mouth. We came dangerously close... <laughs> with the last two records of, of being categorized as a political band, which is something that, not, not politics necessarily, but we never wanted to be pigeonholed into one thing, one category. And um, I decided lyrically that I didn't want to write um, topical songs about hmm. the politics of the day. What I wound up writing, of course, were songs about personal politics, and, and um, a lot of them are from the first person singular, which makes it a lot more intense, I think. Um, Losing My Religion, for instance, is, is kind of an extension of the song World Leader Pretend, in my mind. It's written from the point of every man, or mm. my idea of every man slash woman. And, um, um, I, you know, it's probably my favorite song on the record. Fantastic stuff. 1991, R.E.M. in conversation with Denise Donlin, talking about the album Out of Time. And let's listen to a clip, a very short clip of Michael Stipe and R.E.M. performing Losing My Religion right here. That's me in the corner That's me in the spotlight Losing my religion Trying to keep up you And I don't know if I can do it I don't know what said to my That is a 
perfect example of what a singer should sound like live. Not note perfect, but right on the melody and infusing some emotion and meaning into it. I just love that performance and the way he sings that song. And one of their greatest songs, too, for sure. For sure. R.E.M. on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic, and that song, of course, is Patio Lanterns by Kim Mitchell. And a few days ago, I was given the absolute thrilling task of interviewing Kim Mitchell for iHeartRadio. And I actually think you can find this online on camera somewhere. So good luck with that on uh, iHeartRadio.ca or iHeartRadio Canada. So I want to play you some of my favorite moments from that interview. And i got to tell you, I apologize for all the fawning I do over Kim Mitchell. But as they say these days... Sorry, not sorry, because I am just letting my geek flag fly on this one. So here I am, a big thrill, in conversation with the great Kim Mitchell. What we do on our podcast is, it's called Famous Lost Words, because it's all the old interviews from the old Chum archives. Oh, no. All of them. Including interviews that we have done with you. Mm-hmm. Over the years. So I'm going to play a clip for Would you. Would this be with uh, Larry Wilson, Rick Ringer, yeah, uh, all these guys? That whole gang. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that whole gang that you remember well. So I'm going to play this clip from you. This is from 40 years ago. This is oh, from 1979, no. okay? I'm going to play it for you. And what it is is you describing your experience with the thong, with the thong, with the song Paradise. That too. With, <laughs> with the song Paradise Skies okay. in England. Okay, mm-hmm. so have a listen to this. It's about, I think it's about 40 seconds long. Sure. Over in Europe, Paradise Skies was released for the first single, and it made the 40s, 43, around 43 in the British charts, which is very good. Mm-hmm. Anything in the top 75 over there is amazing. So that put us on a show called Top of the Pops. Oh, yes. You ever BBC. heard of Top of the yeah. Pops? What a weird show that was. Uh, they don't allow, like, uh, all we do is lip sync, right? We did it with the tubes, the police, and all these all these people. But the only lip sync. But we couldn't use uh, Paradise Skies. We couldn't use our record because British law, you have to record and use British people. So the night before Top of the Pops, we had to go to Abbey Road Studios. And we all we had was a four-hour session. So we went there and... Uh, and had to re-record it in four hours. Is that and, right? Yeah, at Abbey Road. And we were in Studio 2 also, which is was where the Beatles did everything. And uh, McCartney has it booked pretty well year-round. His house is right out the back window. When we got in there, it was uh, there was a really nice vibe. You know, it was oh, like, it must have wow, been. here we are. As a matter of fact, we even walked across the road at sunrise. Kitty Lee was with us. <laughs> took a picture. Of, Did you take your shoes off? No, Kitty took his picture, his, his shoes off, and we all walked across Abbey Roads. There you go. Wow. Yeah, that it's it's like yesterday. That whole experience in that studio. So there's a whole bunch of questions that regarding playing a clip like that. First of all, it was 40 years ago. What's it like for you now to hear yourself 40 years ago? That's not me. <laughs> I sound like a young guy. <laughs> now it's like a sound. No, no. Um, well, I'm I'm happy to hear I don't sound like a jerk. I was, <laughs> you, you never know how how you come off uh, sometimes. So, but uh, I just remember that that experience of uh, uh, doing Top of the Pops and mm-hmm. having to re-record British Masters. Actually, they wanted British Masters and right and the vibe in Abbey Road Studios. How, what I'm thinking now is. How lucky was I back then to to be able to do that, and how lucky I still am. 
how many years ago? 40. 40. This yeah, was 1979. 40, year, 40 yeah. years ago to still be, God, I, got, I have had probably the busiest summer I've had in last summer. So yeah, it's, it's unreal. It sure is. And you know, I just want to like, as a guy who grew up with your music, like your music hit me when I was in high school. And for What's so high many, school? Well, it was Waterloo Oxford District Secondary School in okay. Baden, Ontario. Okay, so what'd you pay for the band? Did we play there? You're damn right you played Pro- there. Probably 750 bucks. Is that right? Probably, what, 3 $5 to get in, maybe? I think so, yeah. yeah we, our, like our tickets were usually about 5 bucks to get in. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> like, we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. We're between Kitchener yeah. and Stratford, Ontario. And I love Stratford, too. Yes, and I, yeah. and I, I love Kitchener, and I love my high yeah. school, but it was... You know, it was kind of like we had a lot of cover bands, and then we had you guys. And Max Webster, it was like you guys were from outer space mm-hmm. compared to what we had. And it was such, like it was so cool. It was cool because we finally had a cool band. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, thank our, you for, uh, we our, didn't <laughs> consider ourselves cool, but <laughs> that's not the descriptive we well, used. But we thought we were kind of out there and weird, but uh, well, I guess well, that made yes us kind of cool. Absolutely. Yeah, You're right. out there, out there-ness and weirdness made you cool. And, you know, I was, out, I was DJing a party very, very early on, right around this time when you guys played. And a girl comes up to me at the party. It was just a house party. She comes up and she goes, and I'm, I'm doing her voice as best I can. Hey, man. Do you have any Max Webster? I peek on Max Webster, man. I absolutely peek on Webster. <laughs> and I'll never turn out okay. That. I'm, I have I'm a no little worried. Idea. I'm a little worried too. <laughs> and and so there are so many great memories with you and that and that music from that time. So on behalf of everyone who went to school in Ontario and probably across Canada, for you guys to come out to high schools was absolutely huge for us. So I just want to thank you for that. Well. It was a way that we got to play, do what we do, and do what we love. That, I, mean, I hate to say the word market, but that was a very healthy market back then, playing mm-hmm. high school dances. And it, man, our house cost us 150 bucks a month rent every month. So <laughs> it, um, it was a way to make a bit of dough, and it planted the seed, so to speak. And listening to you talk as you are now and telling stories, I had a younger drummer a little while back, and, and he said, do you know what I noticed about, about playing with you? He goes, everybody that comes up to you has a story about your career or about Max Webster. He says, they all have a story. Says, yeah, I remember meeting you at you know, Eaton Center in Toronto, and you had your two kids, or yeah. I broke up to my girlfriend because I played your music <laughs> too much all the time, and, or she dumped me. So there's yeah. always a and, – and I love that stuff. That stuff, it's more of a, a compliment. It humbles me more than – I appreciate that more than, and I'm not I'm not saying that I don't dig this, having a gold or platinum record mm-hmm. or a Juno award and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That kind of stuff is, uh, that ego wall stuff I don't have, it's in a back room. But mm-hmm. that's the stuff to me that has really, it's the sort of the beacon that makes me go, I'm doing what I set out to do, which was to, through music, bring some happiness to people. Absolutely. Because we're all here to do something on the planet or for humankind. And that's what I do, and it seems to have worked so mm-hmm. far. 
That's funny. You say we're all here to do uh, nice things for people, but I thought we were all here to be reckless. We're all sleazy, <laughs> easy to please dreamers and schemers on the loose, but we'll save you that conversation. You do know for, your lyrics, don't yeah. you? That's great. We're all here for a celebrate. Anyway, That's right. And I do it in Here's your voice. Here's Lucy. She's choosy <laughs> who calls her on the phone. phone. She's yeah. from a very, very rich foreign, foreign family, family, but displaced because of rivalry at home. home. Yeah, man! <laughs> all right! So as you can tell, that was a fun moment for me. And if you're wondering what the heck we are singing, it's a Max Webster classic called The Party. And it's from the album Mutiny Up My Sleeve and the song is absolutely nuts and it's rock and roll mayhem at its best so look it up find it online it's called The Party okay so let's talk about the reason for Kim's visit and it was to promote a new version of an old Max Webster classic the version of Diamonds Diamonds that you're doing with um, Bare Naked Ladies I listened to it yesterday and I was stunned by how beautiful that song remains because that has always been a classic. Thank you. Um, it always sounded great on the radio, and I thought that Canadian radio gave that song short shrift. Is that the phrase? Sure. <laughs> it didn't, didn't get a lot of attention. It didn't get enough play, and it sounded beautiful. It, it sparkled out of the radio. Mm-hmm. And, and so hearing a cover version, you know, you always go, man, what's this going to sound like? It sounded great. It's, it does it's, sound great. And, you know, I was just listening here on a little TV crappy TV monitor, and I was like, wow, okay, it's great, it sounds good. So sometimes you go, ooh, the mix, oh, the vocal's not loud enough, or it's this or that, but I was like, I'm very pleased, I'm jazzed with how it sounds. Yeah, it shimmers just like the original did. She comes across like diamonds, diamonds, That is lovely. Bare Naked Ladies with Kim Mitchell doing the old Max Webster classic, Diamonds, Diamonds. That's just great. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. Let's listen to the last part of my interview with the great Kim Mitchell. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that you have such a big body of work. So do you feel like you need to present people with your latest stuff as well? Like, are you still... No. A growing artist in, in that sense? Well, I'm a growing artist. I do new stuff. Yes. But when it comes to the stage, when it comes to people coming to see you play, mm-hmm. I use the phrase, I'm all about customer service in rock and roll. Right. And you've come to hear this. And if you want to hear Max Webster stuff, great. I have stuff loosely written down for the band. So they know what's coming next. But mm-hmm. I read an audience and I go... They're really into the Max stuff. Let's play a couple more Max mm. things tonight. We're ripping or, in a hangover right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> right now. Or or it's like, well, they're not really getting the Max stuff because yeah. we're in wherever Saskatchewan or something. Right. And it's okay. So let's stick with the Kim Mitchell band stuff. Sure. So, so that's what it's about for me. Mm. I'm, I'm not, I've heard some artists go, oh no, I'm, I'm playing my new album. Right. And like, no, man. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no. I want to come to hear your your big stuff. It is know? funny. And, I, and a bit of deep stuff. Sure. Actually, in the arena rock kind of thing, I always want to hear the big stuff. But yeah. if I'm in a more intimate setting, I'm all about, yeah, yeah, sure, let's go deep. Okay, so let's talk about the time when you went into radio. Because as a radio geek, I was mm-hmm. uh, really thrilled when you got your own radio show. And I think the real beauty of your show was your knowledge of music and how that would how often that would come across on the air and you often played your guitar on the air which i loved oh, okay now i i worked at a competing radio station i still do mm-hmm. and i was listening to you in the afternoons oh thank you wow. <laughs> um and you jammed with some pretty big artists so what are your what are some of the highlights of your time on the air there i loved talking with a lot of musicians one of my favorite moments was um uh, andy summers of the police came in and i always remember him the, his people saying do not, because they knew I like 
people to play. He's like, do not ask him to play. Don't ask him to play. I'm like, yeah, okay. So I had already set up a really nice police Andy Summers sound on the right, guitar yeah, rig I yeah. had. So that Susie came in, I said, yeah. can you show me how to play uh, You know, uh, every breath you take? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, man, I'd love to. <laughs> So it's like you had all these. It was just a beautiful moment. Um, I always remember Gene Simmons uh, coming in, and uh, I said, "You know, we never opened up for Kiss." Max Webster. He goes, "That's because you could play." (laughs) (laughs) Just this cool little little strokey moments. Um, There were some difficult times too. I I was sort of disappointed in John Densmore, the drummer of the Doors. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Why are you being like this? You Mm -hmm. know what you're here to do. Yeah. And uh, same thing with Billy Idol. He was awesome the first time he came in because he was pimping a record. The second time he came in, he had a sold-out show. And it's like, why is he coming in? Okay. But he was being – I was like, I didn't ask you to come here if you don't want to – and I sort of said that. You don't want to be here, man. We can call it right now. Let's go. Yeah. Like, you got other stuff to do. Yeah. I'm, yeah. You don't need to be here. Bye. That's funny because I was going to ask you next about the worst interviews. And, and funny that you mention those guys, but it's also funny that you – made that remark about Gene Simmons because myself and many of the people in Christopher's book about much music said Gene Simmons was the worst. And for me, it was, oh, the, he was a it, sweetheart it was for me, absolutely man. the worst because just how kind of gross he was, especially towards the women on and off oh, the air. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, there's definitely sure. that, uh, that aspect to, uh, to what we do, you know, what, what would get me to sometimes is, is musicians coming in and, and I don't think they know who I am and, Guys like Tommy Lee would go, well, you know what it's like playing in front of seven. I'm like, what? You know who I am? Okay. So it was it was sweet. Uh, my time in radio, they treated me fair, and it was a fun show, and I worked hard at it. And yourself, what you just said, and I had others in the radio business, other competing stations would send me emails once in a while and go, I can tell you've been working on this. You sound really good. Yeah. So, see, hearing that yeah. really balanced out the crap emails yeah, you'd get. Yeah. <laughs> I'm you know, f- not only a big music fan, but I'm also kind of a fan of the business of music. Which one of your songs is the one that you get the most requests for endorsements? Like which one d- actually generates a bit of annual income for you? And I, this, this is too... If this is too personal, you don't want no, to talk no, about that, no, that's no, fine. No, but what, no, what would it be? Uh, coffee, a major coffee chain used Patio Lanterns once. Right. So it's usually the big song. Um, Go for Soda, I don't think has ever been used. Uh, people always equate that with drinking and driving and right. soda. And it's never, the song was never about that. It was about two people in conflict. So you're in one of your blue moods, you want to have it your way, and I want it mine. All this debating going around yeah. makes me thirsty for love. Might as well go for Soda. It's like saying... Let's just go somewhere. Like, let's, let's stop arguing. But right. It's said differently. Um, so Patio Lanterns, that, that's been used. Mm-hmm. I see that. Uh, and then, uh, oh, Miami Vice had, uh, there was a TV show a long time ago, Don Johnson. They used <laughs> Gopher Soda. And I didn't even know it was happening. I think family guys used it. Uh, the, who are the guys out east? Um, uh, bubbles and all them. Right, they Trailer Park go, Boys. Yeah, they did go for soda stuff. A lot of the times, I don't even know this is happening. It's it's uh, in Letterkenny. Once I was watching Letterkenny, and, and at the end of the show, the guy goes, "Yeah, too much John Cougar, not enough Kim Mitchell." <laughs> just out of the blue, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> Great ending to my chat with Kim Mitchell, who just seems so appreciative of the career that he's had and the fact that his music still remains part of Canadian culture. Can't wait to have him back in the studio with us. Kim just finished off three shows in Alberta this week and has some more coming this summer. 
And Christopher, let's talk now about Barry Manilow. Now, this is a really short clip from only a few years ago from our friends at CJAD 800 in Montreal. And Andrew Carter is the name of the announcer. Uh, So just from 10 years ago, talking to Barry Manilow about writing jingles and his first hit single recording the song Mandy. I was uh, telling somebody today that, uh, you know, they they were talking about Barry Manilow songs and there's a certain uh, mystique behind a Barry Manilow song. And uh, they say, well, I, you know, I, I don't really know this song or I didn't know that song. But I said, well, I can guarantee you know this song. And I played the Band-Aid jingle to them. <laughs> and they were absolutely, it was a younger person, blown away that you were the guy behind some of these big jingles. Well, and again, they, they call and they ask if I would like to do one, you know, and I just never have any time left. But I think the last one I did was some sort of a bank commercial. But they keep airing State Farm is there. And they keep airing, I am stuck on a Band-Aid. And these are basically all great songs, are they not? You know, I learned the art of writing great, catchy, hooking melodies from my years in jingle writing, because if you don't sell their, your melody in 10 to 15 seconds, well, you don't get the job. Listen, your first hit, Mandy, you didn't even write it. I, I didn't want to record it because I didn't write it, but I was wrong, wasn't I? This guy, Clive Davis, is um, something else. Clive is the president of Arista. He's got this abilities to put songs together with artists. And it didn't matter whether I wanted to be the songwriter. He heard my voice and this song called Brandy at the time, and he knew that if I did it right and I arranged it right, it would be a hit record. I was very young then, and I didn't want to hit, record anybody else's material except my own, but, I, but he forced me into doing it, and I rearranged it, we changed the title, and he was right. It went zooming to the charts. When you hear it, it still, it still sends uh, the goosebumps through you? It is. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm so far away from it now. I mean, when, I, when I went number one many years ago, you know, I didn't get it. But now, 30 years later, I, I get it. This young guy is singing so vulnerably and so honestly that, yeah, and this beautiful little melody and very, very heart-rending lyric. There you go. Barry Manilow from 2008, Andrew Carter from CJAD in Montreal. Thank you very much, Andrew, for that. Time now for some music news. So we heard just last weekend that Peter Frampton has announced his farewell tour. And it's because he is suffering from a degenerative muscle disease. This is terrible news, but we're glad that he's able to do one final tour. Now, you may remember we ran a great mid-80s interview with Peter on episode four of season one. About a year ago, it was a great interview. I have quite a bit more Peter Frampton audio that I want to play for you in the next few months, but for now, I dug up just this one clip. In light of Peter's recent announcement, I found this to be very poignant. The quality is kind of bad, but the content is great. Here's Peter from the mid-70s talking about the moments that changed his life when he was a teen. I just wanted to be a professional musician. That was it. Mm -hmm. It was uh, at the turning point where it was either another three years at at school, another two years at school, and then three years at music college, I decided that I just got this offer from Andrew Bowne to join the herd. Mm-hmm. So I decided to um, watch my words and tread very lightly and uh, tell my parents about it. <laughs> and uh, my father said, no more school. He said, well, all right then. If this is really what, because I'd driven them up the wall anyway, you know, with... Um, was playing guitar day in and day out, which was, my room was above the kitchen, so I used to stamp my foot, which would really bug my mother, and that's all she could hear, day in and day out, so by the time that came around, they said yes, 
you know, that I could join this, the herd. And within a year, it was, it was like a teeny bopper success. Wonderful clip of Peter Frampton talking about his early days upstairs above the kitchen, driving his poor parents mad, and then turning into a teen sensation in the British band The Herd. Peter's farewell tour starts in June with tickets on sale as of this weekend. There's only one Canadian date, that's Friday, July 5th in Montreal. And the tour is scheduled to go until October. Considering the state of his health, that's a very demanding schedule, and we wish Peter Frampton all the best. Okay, in other news... Foreigner News, original singer Lou Graham has teased the possibility of new material, and he also says that he dreams of reuniting with Foreigner for a Las Vegas residency, which would allow them to play to thousands without the grueling uh, routine of going on the road. But Lou says he has not floated the idea with the rest of the band, but I would suggest that you just did, Lou. Um, okay, also some more bad news. Mark Hollis of the band Talk Talk. Remember this song, It's My Life? It's my life. Great song from the early 80s, It's My Life. They also had a big hit with the song, Life's What You Make It. Mark Hollis has passed away at the age of 64. If you want to hear some great music, uh, The Color of Spring is a great album. That's the one with Life's What You Make It. And there's another album that followed it called The Spirit of Eden. Phenomenal, beautiful album. The success of Bohemian Rhapsody has amped up the appetite for other rock biopics, including the Motley Crue movie The Dirt, and also the Elton John story called Rocket Man. This was supposed to star Justin Timberlake. Then Tom Hardy got on board, but he didn't think he had the vocal chops. So now it's up to Taron Egerton, or Taron Egerton, in the lead role, and the movie is due in theaters at the end of May. That does it for another episode of Famous Lost Words. Don't forget to tell everyone you know about the show, and that they can get caught up with all 40 or so past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. Famous Lost Words is produced by me, Tom Jokic, and Adam Karsh. Thanks, Adam. Executive producer, Rob Farina. Also want to give a shout out to Rob Basile and the gang at Orbit Media. Talk to you next week. <laughs>